0: Specific web patterns, so looking at, we've got all these patterns that we've taken from other fields and software, how do we make them very much specialised to the technologies we've got on the web, and a few sort of meta points about how to apply these patterns. So the, the point of departure for many people with patterns is this book, who recognises this? Okay, most people here. I mean, it's um, it's actually now around 20 years old since they started this research, um, but still like very timeless, still very practical. A lot of the content in it. Um, it's a, it's basically it was actually patterns from Smalltalk and C++ at the time on object-oriented development, and uh, and it's really like it started a lot of thinking around patterns in software. But actually, where patterns originally came from was architecture, as in traditional building architecture and town planning. And uh, this chap, Christopher Alexander, in the 60s and 70s, he was really looking at the kinds of recurring solutions that people would come up to, to how they set up their places to live and how they set up towns and so on. And what's really fascinating about this is you get the same patterns everywhere in the world. So they went around and they looked at all these ancient cultures You could see like a a little village in in, uh, Mexico would be structured the same way as a village in Papua New Guinea and so on. And the reason they're doing that, of course, is because you've got the same forces pushing you towards the same solution that that evolve over time. You've got certain forces of laws of physics and how people operate and how they interact with each other. And that that leads you to the same solutions. And that's very much the way that software patterns work. You you sort of look around at what are the, the problems that people keep coming up against. And even if they're in different industries and different technologies, you tend to get the same solutions coming up over and over again. And it then led to look at user interface patterns. And this is also what I was doing at the time um, when I was working on my PhD sort of a few years after design patterns, was really looking at how you apply them to user experience, where they really fit in um, nicely with the original idea on architecture, because uh, the, the kind of architecture patterns that Christopher Alexander was uh, grasping towards was very much about making things habitable, right? Making it very easy for people to, to live in and making their workplaces flexible and so on. And that fits really nicely with, with making our users uh, happy as well, as well as making ourselves happy as developers so it's easy for us to, to, to morph the system and keep it modular and, and agile as the system evolves. And... I actually a few years after that I wrote a, this Ajax design patterns uh, I wrote a set of uh, patterns on my blog when, when Ajax just came out I was trying to understand Ajax so a useful way to understand something is to go and do some pattern recognition around it and so I sort of documented some of these very early Ajax patterns before Ajax was a term you know, that people were doing like Flickr was doing and so on which ultimately led to the book the book ended up with a different cover to this one this was like the 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 publisher's cut that I got. But you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to ignore the part that, that, that I've got a book with a, a water tower on a blue background and, uh, and just focus on, you know, I had a nice bird <laughs> cover at some point. Uh, and then it led to these just JavaScript design patterns. So, like, focusing on JavaScript as a language. But really, the, all those patterns from that sort of era were focused on just this incremental evolution from static websites to interactive websites. So, there were these sites like Flickr where it was very much like the the kind of thing people were doing up until around 2008, 2009, which is a a standard web page. You spit out some HTML from the server. It works properly as a normal web page, but then you progressively enhance it with some Ajax magic. And I think where we are now is we're in this world of very much around single page apps, where it's the so-called empty body tag. You're just doing all the user interface and the business logic and the application logic in the client and a little bit controversial for web standards, purists, and I'm not going to get into that debate here. Um, It's really, I think, just the momentum of where things are going, and it's very much where a lot of the the, the patterns are placed. So people are really looking now at at what are the kinds of architectures and the challenges we've got in building these apps where the entire app, apart from a little bit of validation and security stuff, is going on inside the client. So high-scale architecture can lead to issues, right? So, you know, this is the, the, the downside or the challenge with when you, you actually start to move everything into the client, you suddenly end up with a, a very high-scale system. So happy to have Addy Osmani here tonight, and Addy's uh, done a lot of work on this as well, looking at, you know, the, the kinds of patterns, really this is like what I consider Ajax Pattern 3.0, you know, it's really looking at at these these large-scale systems, what are the patterns that go on inside them, And Eddie spoke here a little while ago, and he's written a lot of stuff about it, so I'm not going to try to repeat everything from that. Um, What I'm going to do is summarise a little bit of the general thinking, and then I'll talk about some specific patterns that I think can go on top of that, that are are related specifically to the web technologies that we use. Uh, Any questions so far before I jump into these principles and patterns? Cool. So... I think this is what I call the mother of all design principles. It's basically about just being modular, right? You know, it's the classic computer science idea about divide and conquer and breaking your, your application into modules. And really what it's about is it's avoiding this tight coupling situation where you've got all these different components in your system and they're all relying on each other and you end up in this situation where you want to change one and you end up in this game of whack-a-mole, you change one and then two other things break and you change those and then this other thing over there breaks... And just really frustrating situation for developers. Uh, So what we want to do, you know, the way that that the classic approach to deal with it is to to break things up, um, you know, into modules. And, uh, you know, you can call it, there's lots of different principles around this, traditional software principles that people use these names for. But basically it's the idea of breaking your, your system up into pieces and uh, you know, where you can understand each piece on its own and you can move it around into other systems. So on the web, if we start to apply th- these kind of general principles to the technologies that we the, we deal with, whether we like it or not, they're the only technologies we've got that run inside the browser. Um, firstly, JavaScript. So JavaScript modules are very much around, uh, um, you know, we've had this for the last few years already, so frameworks like jQuery, um, collections of libraries, uh, like dojo and so on, um, for doing all sorts of things that might be domain specific or for structuring how you deal with the user interface and so on. So it could be functions, it could be collections of functions or classes and so on. HTML is interesting because I think we're getting to a point where we've got a much better idea about how we can create modules for HTML. And the basic idea there is templates, right? We've got HTML templates now inside the client. It's a new trend over the past few years. Taking the templating approach that we've always had to, to spit out content from the server, now we're actually generating those things in the client so we can build up reusable templates and use them, reuse them across different systems. And uh, you know, just by taking this template, put some data in it, you can add a new object to your user interface. And on the CSS side, we have style sheets, and style sheets actually serve as a kind of module. If you use something like a reset style sheet or if you use something like Twitter Bootstrap, you're able to derive all that work that they've done and, and actually put it into your own project just by using the right class names. And we're, we're getting to a point where we can be even more modular than that when we look at some of the newer CSS frameworks <coughs> like, uh, like SAS, Stylus, and LESS. Uh, and hopefully CSS4 will have these ideas, too, that we've got the idea of having, for instance, a gradient function that instead of writing, like, 12 lines of gradients for every browser that's ever been made, we can just write gradient once, and then that, that's taken to mean all these other things that are defined somewhere else. So we've got kind of modules for each of the, the, the different components that we have to deal with. The elephant in the room here is, you know, what are these sort of, these tri-components here? Um, and really what I'm talking about here is a kind of (coughs) widget concept Um, people again talk about them as web components on modules and so on and it's the idea that you do actually tend to have things coupled together you don't have to, you can design things in different way in different ways but often you end up with something say like a a calendar control or some sort of, uh, if you're talking about a game it could be like a little (coughs) scrabble board that you embed in your application and typically you'll be bundling these things together you'll be bundling that the markup the CSS to style it and the JavaScript to, to control the behavior. And effectively, you've got a set of miniature contracts in there, right? You've got the contract about the HTML has to have certain classes and if it follows and it's got that those classes and that structure, then we can make it look pretty with some CSS because the CSS assumes those classes are there. And likewise, the JavaScript knows how to manipulate it. This is really a sort of runtime configuration, right? So this isn't saying that... The, Um, you're you're tied to always use the same CSS with the same HTML, that would defeat the whole purpose of of this exercise, which is that you can separate these things out, but it's really like you bundle them together at runtime, you you combine the three of them, and that's basically what forms your basic module, your widget, and that's really about how high-scale software or web apps can actually work. And you, you can you might have just one bundle that's where they're completely tied for a single app or you might say within the app you might try different, uh, you might be plugging and playing different uh, JS or different CSS for a given component. So you can see how CSS might vary if you have a different skin for instance, you might actually use different CSS against the widget. But also JavaScript, if you look at some of the traditional design patterns like strategy and command, you might have different strategies to, to interact with something as well. So In the case of a game, you might have the expert JavaScript module and the beginner JavaScript module. And they're effectively following the same contract. They're assuming the same thing about what the HTML will do and how it's structured, but inside their implementation is different. And so they they sort of get bound together by you at runtime. So how we can make these things modular, uh, the basic principle there is to have some sort of mediator that actually combines all these things together, and the point is, these things don't know about each other. You know, That's how you avoid that whack-a-mole situation, um, is basically the, 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 the modules don't know about each other, they just know there's something going on outside the world and something inside, and they're really like black box taking in input and output, and it's up to the application, some application object, to tie them all together. So the good thing about this is, if we take this approach, we end up without any coupling anymore so we don't have that whack-a-mole situation. If something goes wrong we can actually isolate it and we can, we can be sure using unit tests and so on that that one thing's gone wrong. We can reuse these content, these modules as well so we can actually take the one module and put it in different contexts. It might be in an e-commerce application in one place and then you can take the, say if it's a shopping cart, you can take it out and put it into a social network and you can put it into a game and whatever else. It's like you're starting to build the idea of reusable modules. And we're getting to that point now. If you look on um, you know, a project like GitHub really was a dream a few years ago to be able to just pull things off and just put them into your application. In a few years ago on the web, things were so fragile and everyone was doing their own way of doing architectures that you couldn't do it. Um, but now we've had a lot of jQuery uh, components in the past and we're getting to a point with AMD as a protocol that, that you'll be able to hopefully reuse no matter what sort of underlying framework you're using. You'll be able to reuse these different components. And also with web, the, the web, I mentioned web components. Alex Russell spoke here a few months ago as well about the idea of of hopefully where the Chrome guys want to take the web in the future, which is that you could actually invent your own tag. So if you're not happy um, using a JavaScript library for a calendar, you can actually create a, a calendar like Angle bracket calendar that other people then then end up using inside their app, and it's got it's got the JavaScript and the CSS and so on actually packaged within it. And it's great for testing as well, so this, you know, by isolating things out, you know actually what's wrong and you can automate tests and so on to, to, to immediately find when you create a problem in your system. So that's kind of the mother of all principles, is just how you actually make things modular. Uh, the, what I'm calling the mother of all uh, JavaScript app uh, patterns is this one. It's about basically events and listeners and, and um, observing uh, behaviour. So the basic principle uh, is that we want to separate out these things into modules. Uh, what tends to happen when you look at, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the work that Addy's done and, and other um, people in this area about architecture is a lot of it is around publish-subscribe. It's around this idea that, that these things just pump out events and, and they, they take in events. They, they basically take in requests for anyone who's in, interested in... Um, in, in finding out about when they're actually doing something. So you can think of a, your application, it's trying to make these, these modules a little bit intelligent or autonomous, making them autonomous, if you like. So it's like a super of all these objects interacting. And, uh, and really, once you set them up to point to each other, they sort of know how to behave. They, they can subscribe to see what other people are doing, and they can actually output events themselves to tell other people about what's going on. Um, and if we, we can have this as a sort of central messaging bus. This is basically what the browser does with low-level events, not really semantic events, but things like mouse clicks. You know, the browser arranges it so, you, so a piece of JavaScript can actually find out when a div is clicked. Right? Um, there's kind of this central messaging bus going on inside the browser that transmits, that keeps track of anyone who said this div needs to be clicked. Uh, it will send that out when the div is actually clicked. Um, but you know, when you're talking about high-level semantic events, you don't have to necessarily have a sort of central hub for this. You can basically get objects to be responsible for their own, for maintaining their own set of uh, listeners. So you know, so you can basically have uh, you know uh, a set of semantic events. You might have a, a single object pumping out different events um, depending on what individual objects are listening to. Um, an example would be the shop cart example I mentioned. So, in the case of the shop cart, you might have a bunch of objects that want to know when the shop cart has an item added. A different set of objects might want to know when it's being removed, and a different ob- set of objects, again, might want to know when the item's changed. Whether you want to have different events for all those, or you want to have just one general uh, collection of all things that want to know anytime anything happens, that's kind of a design decision. You can choose how coarse grain your events are. But that's basically the principle. So it's, it's quite familiar to you if you've already used just normal JavaScript event handlers for, for things like hovers and clicks and so on. But it's really extending it to, to the same kind of thing, but semantic events, things of meaning to your users and your application logic. And it has a whole bunch of names, so you know, observer, listener, events. You know, there's been a million and one patterns about these things in a million and one context. Um, But that's really the bottom line, is this kind of heartbeat that goes on throughout your application where these events just ripple out. Anytime something happens with a module, it ripples out this event, and any other module that wants to know about it can listen to it and react to it, and then things kind of work um, by themselves. So when we talk about sort of applying these things web first... um, Really what I'm saying is to use the force, right? To, to basically take what, what, is, what, what, what are the, the, the kind of laws of physics that run inside a browser and, and make the most of them. Because within any context, these are kind of general principles and patterns, but really we want to be able to apply them to the web itself and the kind of technologies that we have to deal with. So I want to give a few examples of very specific patterns now that I've found to be useful um, for, for JavaScript web apps. Firstly, Automagic event registration so I'll let you read this to put it in context so I don't know if you can read it up the back but the pattern solved my problem now you have another problem right and this is kind of the way that patterns this is the logic of patterns if you look at Christopher Alexander's patterns right from the start you know he's talking about how you divide the world into nations and then then how you structure a city and then by the end 200 patterns later he's talking about you know how do you design what sort of bricks should you use for your study right it's, it's fractal, it's recursive. So you solve one problem, you've got a new context, now you've got a whole bunch of new problems to solve. And so when we talk about doing this kind of model of, of semantic events pumping through the application, that's good, that solves a very important major problem, but now we're left with a slightly easier problem to solve, which is that we how do we actually wire these things up? How do we configure things so we can point all these objects and, and make sure that the right things are listening to the right events. And you know we end up with code like this right at the start of the application. This is the problem that we have to solve is we've got this kind of messy bit of code where it's everything bundling up and, and configuring to point to um, all the different objects. So I actually went through this with a website I run called Web Wait, um a few years ago. Where I had these different components and I kind of hacked it up together and I wanted to make some changes. And so I actually put this, uh, I up. I, I, this was for Backbone and so on, so I had to kind of make my own event mechanism. Um, and I did it um, by doing, by doing the, the sorts of things I've talked about. So I've got kind of events for, web weight sort of times uh, how long a web page takes. So I've got events for when, when the user clicks to start a timing trial, and when the timing trial ends, and so on. And each object can respond to that. But I went ahead and did something a little bit further with that. I made it so that you could automatically register events. Um, So instead of this kind of code of of having to wire up which are the things that want to listen to which events, uh, basically I made it so that all you have to do, if you're interested in an event, uh, or if if an object is interested to know about an event, it just automatically declares functions with with that event name. There's no no registration at all. It just just declares those events. Functions with those events. And we can do this sort of thing in JavaScript because we've got a very dynamic language. So the way it works is at that, that sort of app mediator level. When the application starts, you have a bunch of components and a bunch of ob- uh, event types, and it does a double loop. Basically, it loops for every component for every event type. Does the component declare a function whose name is the event type? Basically, so it looks. It, it does a, some some reflection, if you like, on each of the the methods in all of these components, and and then if it if it if it does actually declare that it's got this if it's got this function there that means it, it wants to know about that event, it keeps track of it, and when that event gets fired, it just knows who to actually call. Um, so it, it's not solving a massive problem, but it's just making life a little bit simpler. Um, and you could be more sophisticated than that. This is a very central mechanism, and there's no kind of registration of components and so on. Um, but if you look at the sorts of things people have done in the Java world with frameworks like Spring, you could potentially apply the same thing here. Um, it's, so you end up with this situation where all you do is you just declare your, your events. Um, that's the net effect. Anytime you create a new component, all you really have to do is just declare functions that are named after the events that it wants to know about. And it's an example of the the convention over configuration principle uh, that's been used in, like I said, it's used in Spring and Java, it's used in Ruby on Rails, and it's something that we can take great advantage of in in JavaScript as well, because we've got a dynamic language, it makes it very (coughs) easy to do this kind of design. So rather than configuration of pointing all these things to each other and setting up this um, big set of relationships, it's done by convention. The convention is that you name your functions in a certain way. OOCSS is a pattern that comes from uh, Nicole Sullivan, um, reasonably popular. Uh, who's here of OOCSS here? Yeah, that third. So the idea is to kind of apply object-oriented principles, design principles to CSS. And um, What it's trying to avoid is uh, CSS jungle, not that what that is it's not much of a CSS jungle right there but, um, but the point is, is you end up with all these, these uh, different uh, properties being applied in different contexts and so what Nicole Sullivan says is a couple of things, firstly use classes as much as you can avoid IDs and tags so this is pretty much how I do most web development now, I don't really use IDs uh, hardly at all, um, it might be a performance optimization you can make later on but generally, even if I've only got one of a particular kind of thing, I just use a class straight away because it tends to be a lot more useful as the application evolves. Um, and the idea there, of course, is so that you can reuse these, these uh, rules across different um, components, different applications. And she's actually consulted to places like Yahoo and Facebook. And you can imagine the kind of complexity they've got. Imagine Facebook with, with this massively rapid growth over the first few years where they'll have all these different developers creating all these different apps at the same time you can imagine how much duplication they would have in their style sheets um, from people just trying to get something out and make something look like it the same as it looks somewhere else and so to get around that sort of thing, to make CSS much more modular and, and structured it's basically around using classes and and also avoiding hierarchies as well um, so if you're not saying dot account dot heading, if you're just saying this is actually what a heading looks like regardless of which hierarchy it's in, uh, you're much better off. Of course you can use a hierarchy later on to really specialize something, how it appears within a given context. Um, But from the default point of view, as much as you can, start off by just defining what do you really think about when you think about a heading or an account, what does that sort of thing really have to look like? So classy HTML, (coughs) this is my personal favourite among these patterns because it's something I've been using profusely for the past year or so. Uh, the, the, the problem is trying to solve is you end up with a lot of display logic uh, where you've got lots of decisions around your, your page, right? So, is the user logged in? Do, then we have to show their name. Are they currently editing the page? Then we have to show some edit controls. Are they allowed to comment? Then we have to let them comment, you know, leave a comment uh, input box. So you tend to have, displays aren't static, right, in the JavaScript world. They tend to rely on a lot of things about who the user is and what's the context and what's the current state. What's the user, has it, what's the user's done, what has the user done up till now um, to, to lead to, to the current state, like in the case if the user's leaving a comment or if they're editing the page. All of those things end up leading to, di- leading to different display logic. So you know, typically we'll end up with code like this where, OK, we're going to start editing, so we're going to show this, and we're going to slide this down and fade it out and stop editing, so we'll unroll all of that. You end up with if statements about if the user is currently editing, if the user is allowed to do this, all these sorts of things um, might appear in your, your, your um, client side templates. The way to get around this that I found really useful is actually to apply classes to the root class, to your HTML class, right? Um, and basically, if the user starts editing something, we just add a class of editing to your HTML class right at the top, and that means all of these CSS rules will follow from that. So, so if you actually associate the state of your application um, with Top level, then your CSS can reflect the state of the application. So you can say things like, "Mix panel is normally display none, but if you're editing, meaning that the editing is at the top of the, the HTML, so editing mix panel display it." And of course, we can use uh, transitions as well. So if you want to get those fancy fades and so on, um, we can use CSS transitions to do the same sorts of things. Um, just you know, when we enter the editing phase, when we sorry, when we enter editing. Uh, In which case, editing comments starts to apply, then we're going to use a transition to show, you know, some scrolling down effect or whatever. And we can generalize this too, so if we want to get a bit more semantic about it, we can actually uh, make a general rule and say anything that's that's classed uh, for editing will only show up when the user is in editing mode. And so, suddenly we're able to define a lot about our application logic within CSS about how the, the application looks, whether or not you're editing. Just by saying for editing, display uh, none, so normally it's not displayed, but if you're in editing mode, because the top level is editing, um, display block. And this works out really nicely if you're using something like LESS or SAS, you know, where you've got parent selectors, which will hopefully come in in CSS4 as well. Um, you can do, have you know, rules like this, so just a little bit of syntax sugar say display none, editing Amazon, display block. and This pattern has been used a little bit in uh, Modernizer, for instance, and Modernizer will associate the HTML, it will add all these classes, so it will say like HTML class equals video, class equals local storage, so you can find things out that way and you can write your CSS according to what's on the page. But, and, and also media queries as well it's kind of the similar sort of logic as media queries writing style style rules that are based on what are the uh, what's the size of the application the, the window or, or whats whether we're in a mobile mobile world or not but uh, but what I'm saying here is something a little bit more um, it's extending that concept to something that's dynamic so you're constantly changing that that top level class and you're writing your CSS, um, to follow through. The final pattern is Live Template, it's a little bit speculative, but I think it's something that we'll be looking at more in the future, that we'll see different frameworks arise. And the idea is that, that you can have, um, you, you have a normal template, so we're now at a point where we now have, we've moved templates from the server side to the browser side, um, but the template, the output is still static, so we apply a template once, we put some HTML on the page and that's it, it doesn't really know who its parent was, it doesn't really know the template it came from. I think that will start to change in the future, Um, so it's kind of a speculative idea, but what if we wanted to change this list, with these list items, into a table all of a sudden, or maybe animated in some way or whatever, we can't really do that at the moment. Um, We can't really just change the template and have that automatically apply. one way we might do it is by somehow associating a class or somehow remembering where it came from with a data URI, the data attribute. And, and again, that was something that Alex Russell demonstrated. It's part of the general web components concept that, that they'll hopefully have something like this built in in the future and it will actually be something that's live. So you've got a two-way binding, basically. You output the HTML from the template, but the template can it can stay, can, main, can be maintained at any time you change can the template in the future. The html changes. So just to finish off, um, a few meta tips, a few general uh, pieces of advice about following design patterns. Firstly, do embrace a little bit of chaos. The world is not going to end if you have a bit of hacking here and there, a bit of messiness in your code. And in fact, uh, quite to the point, you should actually be embracing a bit of chaos. You know, This is the agile or lean concept of technical <coughs> debt. It says, you know, even though there are all these great patterns out there, you don't have to feel obliged to use them. It's much better to give your users some love and just get something, get the most important thing out there straight away, see if people find it useful, and then evolve the system. And from a technical point of view, I think it's really important to have a bit of chaos too, because if you don't, you end up in analysis paralysis. You end up trying to perfectionize everything. Hey, did I just make a new word? Let's <laughs> write that down <laughs> Quick get the domain. Um, yeah, you end up trying to perfectionise everything, and uh, and, uh, and you don't really know what are the points. You know, any any design you could optimise it in any number of ways. You don't really know what are the points that are going to cause you pain and to actually start to experience and experience them a little bit. And that's really the time. So patterns are closely associated with the idea of refactoring. About about not just. Applying all the patterns right up front, but as you evolve your system, you just sort of add new patterns into it. There's also this great paper, um, one of the original Gang of Four who wrote the Design Patterns book. He wrote this, uh, Ralph Johnson wrote this paper, talking about how frameworks are basically components plus patterns. So if you have a good framework, um, it's actually a set of all these different reusable components that fit nicely together with each other, so you can combine them well and they all follow the same sorts of principles. And uh, we're seeing that now. So we, you know, take advantage, of course, of all these different frameworks that are out there. These boilerplates and things like Twitter Bootstrap—they fit nicely. The components they provide, they look nice, nicely together from the user's point of view, and from a developer's point of view, they're easy to combine together within the same framework. And of course, we've got all these libraries uh, now too, and these sort of micro frameworks of doing model, view, controller, and. Observer type, uh, semantic event, all these sorts of things. These concepts are really embodied in these frameworks, um, and it's really it's really a really great time actually for JavaScript in that sense that we're getting this whole evolution. There's actually a conference uh, Backbone Conf coming out that will focus just on these these uh, different frameworks. And finally, this Japanese concept, uh, martial arts idea, Shuhari, is basically the idea that you take the pattern, you learn from it, you follow it rigorously. And then you start to realize where it's got flaws, you start to put your own ideas in, and finally you leave. You don't really know about the pattern anymore. You just, are ah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I would leave it there. So as I said, uh, slide slash web patterns and any feedback to me from different places.